Welcome back to Open to Truth, a podcast all about big ideas and discovering the truth together. My name's Tony, and this week we have special guest Jim Renacy on the show. He's a former congressman of Ohio's 16th district, and he served from 2010 to 2019 in the House before leaving Washington after experiencing betrayal and ineffectiveness firsthand. So in this episode, we talk all about his new book, The GOP's Lost Decade, and how the system is broken. It's a interesting conversation. So if you find it useful or helpful, uh, feel free to like, comment, and subscribe. We'd love to interact with your questions. Without further ado, here's the conversation. Well, welcome to the podcast, Jim. Thanks for joining us. I'm uh, glad to be here. And so before we dive into what we just heard in our intro about your time in Washington and why you got into politics and eventually why you exited um, at one point, I think our audience would really love to hear a bit about your story, your upbringing, your childhood. Where did you grow up? Were there any like formative moments in that time that drove you to business and a career in politics? Yeah, so look, I grew up in western Pennsylvania, a small town, uh, really between Denorum and Angahela, Pennsylvania. Uh, went to, it's interesting because our schools were kind of spread out, so people asked me where I went to school. I went to uh, uh, grade school in Denor, uh, middle school in Monongahela, and then back to high school in Denor. It was kind of the way the education system was set up back then. Grew up in a blue-collar union family. My dad was a railroad worker. My mother was a nurse. Um, you know, my dad lost his job when I was eight years old, so uh, hmm. my mother, you know, kind of kept the uh, family going with her position in nurse. She worked night turns. Uh, which meant that she left the house about 10 o'clock, came back about 7 in the morning. My dad would leave at 6 mm. in the morning, come back about 6 at night, uh, which was actually an interesting upbringing because it allowed us to learn how to become independent, which I think was was a good uh, uh, part of growing up. Uh, but they, they taught us some really good values. I have two sisters, and, and we learned that, uh, you know, if you work hard and do the right thing, anything's possible. My grandfather was a coal miner, huh. union coal miner. My dad was in the union and the railroad before he lost his job. So, you know, it was a blue-collar union upbringing, but it was also a great experience. And I learned some great values and principles uh, that uh, I've continued to uh, use not only in my business career, but also in my uh, professional and political career as well. So it's a little bit unusual that coming from a blue-collar, saturated area that you went into the heights of business world and then of the politics how did that evolve like get from um you know being in that setting to owning your own business what's kind of the jump or the leap there well you're exactly right when you grow up in western pennsylvania it was about getting a job and and uh working probably in the steel mills or the coal mines that was the normal uh especially in high school but uh when i i was uh, my mom begged me to go to college i wrote about this in my book that she really wanted me to go to college I give it a try, as she said, which I did. I took up business. I got uh, uh, very comfortable with uh, uh, business statistics, hmm. analysis and statistics, and I started to realize that this was something I really enjoyed. Um, I also liked the, the idea of the financial side of things and uh, ended up uh, getting a degree in business administration, becoming a certified public accountant, and working in downtown Pittsburgh right out of college. So uh, that was the start for me, and, and that also gave me a great upbringing in business because as a CPA in a large firm, Grant Thornton, I was able to travel not only around western Pennsylvania but into Ohio, work with business owners, get to know how small business worked, big business worked, and uh, really gave me an opportunity to say, this is something that, that I could do, mm -hmm. and uh, eventually got a phone call from one of those business owners asking me to come to work for him, uh, which was in Wadsworth, Ohio, and uh, uh, even though I didn't want to come, uh, you know, he made me an offer that uh, my dad basically, and I talk about this in my book as well. Double the yeah. salary or something? Well, yeah. I first said, uh, you know, my dad said, go back to him and, and tell him, if you don't really want to go, which I didn't, I was I had a great career. Uh, he said, if you, if you really don't want to go, go back and offer him something he won't, you know, that uh, he won't accept. And you can just say, okay, I'm not coming. And I doubled my salary and asked for a brand new car. And lo and behold, <laughs> he accepted the offer and um, I was stuck going, even though I had no intentions, but that was also a basic principle. My dad always taught me, the only thing you have in life, son, is your word. Once you give somebody your word, you can never take it back. And um, I gave that individual my word that I would take that job without offer. And I was stuck leaving a place that I didn't want to leave and coming to Wadsworth, Ohio, you know, 37 years ago. So before we dive into your time in Wadsworth, 
any um what was the political texture like in the Renesi household growing up was that was politics a a big deal in your family or just something you did you voted every couple of years what was that yeah politics w- was not i mean l- look we were a hard working blue collar family that you know we, we didn't pay attention to what was going on in washington we didn't pay attention to what was going on in government uh, most of the time we were just worried about making uh, ends meet mm. you know getting food on the table uh but it was a democratic area, so most people, including my mother, my father, my grandparents, were all Democrats and uh, and believed in the democratic principle, which at that time was, if you work hard, do the right thing, um, anything is possible. I think that has since changed where, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons why I left the Democratic Party. Hmm. So you get to Wadsworth, you're working for someone, making a pretty decent salary. What What's the jump into owning your own business? Well, I was making more than I was making in Pittsburgh, that's for sure, because I got a double my salary, but I but I was also putting in a lot of time. I was uh, getting in at 6 in the morning and working until 2 in the morning. Uh, I found the company uh, was 10 years behind on a lot of things, uh, and, and I'm usually one that once I get involved with something, I never leave it worse than it was. So I spent a lot of time. I built a staff, took the business from really a point where it it uh, it was 20 years behind the times brought it up to the Times, then realized um, if this guy could do this and do it well, I can do it even better because mm, I saw right. um, what he had not done and and realized that I could do it better. And that's what I did. I ended up jumping into, he was in the healthcare business. I jumped in the healthcare business and at the age of 24, acquired my first facility in Southern Ohio and then went from one business to 60 businesses, created over 1,500 jobs and employed about 3,000 people over the span of three decades. Wow, that's incredible. So at some point in that three decades of owning businesses, someone must have approached you, right, and said, hey, you could, you've done this in the business world. We could use some help over here in managing a city and eventually a nation or a state. Um, so who, who approached you to be involved with politics and get involved? Well, I was always one that believed in giving back. Um, you know, we're, we're put on this earth with, uh, with, with assets and, and God-given assets, and I always believed in giving back to my community. So I did a lot of things in my community. I was a firefighter at one point in time um, and, uh, you know, on a number of boards and, and, uh, and volunteered a lot, was a baseball coach. And, uh, and I got to know the mayor of the community, who was a Democrat at the time, and he asked me to get involved in the planning commission and the Board of Zoning Appeals, which were volunteer positions. And I agreed to do that, um, which gave me some insight on how a city at least is planned and operated. Hmm. Uh, And then at one point in time, uh, a number of Republicans within the city uh, got to know me just from being on the Planning Commission and and saw that the city was going in somewhat the wrong direction and really asked me to get involved and uh, be part of a leadership team that... uh, would run the city of Wadsworth. I had no interest. They kept coming back to me. And then eventually, like in most situations, after being asked two or three times, I agreed to do it. Uh, Ran at that time for president of city council, which meant I ran the legislative body. Um, I did that for four years and realized that I could get a lot more done by being the mayor because I really wanted to make it better. And uh, so after four years, I ran for mayor and then became mayor with the principal that I was going to fix the city and then leave, which is something politicians don't do. Right. Normally they get involved and they stay for life. I said I was only going to be there long enough to fix it. And what was wrong? What was the problem that you noticed? Like people in the Republican Party saying, ah, things are going downhill. Well, what does that practically mean? Like what was going wrong? Well, at the time, the city was run by Democrats. So, of course, Republicans right away say, hey, the Democrats are running it wrong. (laughs) I'm sure if it was reversed, it'd be saying the same thing. But the truth of it was the city was spending more money than it was bringing in. And it was uh, starting to dig into its uh, reserve fund. And the city did have a large reserve fund, but every year it was reducing its reserve fund just to balance the budget. So in essence, uh, they were spending more they were bringing in. They needed somebody to balance the books, balance the the economy. And that's actually what uh, I was able to do in my time at the city. Yeah, and you, you mentioned in your book, and sorry, I should have mentioned this earlier, the GOP's lost decade um, you mentioned that I think you took it from a $1.5 million deficit in the budget to a surplus without raising taxes. Right. 
And I think just for our audience to kind of understand this, if you can unpack the principles behind that, I think that would be the knee-jerk reaction for a city to raise more money. Oh, we can just tax our citizens a little bit more, scrape that off the top, and that'll help balance the budget. But there are other ways to do it. What are those other ways, and how does that process work? Well, it's just like in a business world. And again, a city is a business. People don't like to think of it that way. But in the business world, if you just raise your prices, you lose your customers. So you just can't automatically raise prices or raise taxes. Because I'll move. I don't have to live in Wadsworth. Right. Yeah. So the answer really is, how do you? How, what do you do? You look at your expenses like you would in business, and you figure out a way to grow revenues. And that's what I did. I realized that the city at the time was about 68% residential. That was too much. There's not enough tax base in residential. You do need commercial. You do need uh, you know, industrial. You need all those other bases. And, and I realized... By going to other cities throughout the state that our city was out of balance. Hmm. Um, we needed less residential, more commercial, uh, more industrial. And that's what I did. I said, let's rebalance our economics of the city. And at the same time, let's look at our expenses. And it was that was probably the easiest thing because we had too many cars. We, we hadn't bid things out. I put normal business principles into practice. In other words, we couldn't buy anything in that city without getting three bids. Well, that's what you normally would do in business. But a, a city was just buying from the same people all the time. Uh, you know, I bid out the health insurance. I mean, I, I still remember health insurance alone, I saved almost a half a million dollars hmm. because it, it had been the same carrier year after year after year. And I bid it out and found a carrier that actually gave better health care for less price. But that's what happens when you, you, you put things into a competitive uh, situation. So... It was a little bit of both. It was raising revenues by not raising taxes, but raising the economic base and cutting expenses. I mean, the other big thing, and I, talk, I think I talked about this in a book, I mean, the city had like 30-some cars, 30-some vehicles, and that was unnecessary. I cut that down to four or five vehicles and said, look, we can share vehicles, and, you know, uh, the service director doesn't have to have a vehicle, and, uh, you know, and we just eliminated some of those vehicles. Right. So. And just for people that may not know, Wadsworth isn't this huge metropolitan area where you might have need a fleet of vehicles. Yeah, well, it's yeah. with about 23 to 24,000 people. So it's not a small, small city, but it's not, you know, hundreds of thousands of people like a large metropolitan city. But at the same time, it just needed rebalance and, and somebody needed to look at the books. And that's why I say many times, I talk about that in a book, we need business people in, in government, not only at the state level, but at the federal government level, because... Business people know how to balance books. Um, politicians only know how to get reelected. So I, I really want to dive into the whole topic of budget in Washington. I, I view that as like the main filament running throughout your book. Um, before we get there, we need. To, how did you get to Washington? So you're mayor of Wadsworth, and you break the mold by abdicating power once you're there. You came in, did the good. Uh, so how do you get into now more congressional? types of political action? Well, remember, I still was a businessman, even when I was mayor of Washington, mm. uh, Wadsworth. So I did have a uh, number of businesses, including a Chevy dealership in town that uh, I took over that was troubled uh, and turned it around, had 56 or 58 employees. Uh, we were booming. We were doing really well. And um, I went back uh, to, my, to my business world. Uh, but at that same time, General Motors was going through some troubles. Uh, the uh, federal government took over General Motors around 2008 or 2009, decided that they were going to force them into bankruptcy, uh, which they did. They took it over and said, you need to go bankrupt. Um, it was a bankrupt that was a scheduled bankrupt from a, from a government standpoint, because a normal bankruptcy, you bankrupt, and then you allow your creditors to make the decisions. In this bankruptcy, the federal government took over and they made the decisions. Hmm. And one of the things they did, they hired a car czar who had never driven a car, and, and, and a number of car czars who made decisions on what dealerships stayed and what dealerships left. And even though General Motors told me I was one of the best dealerships and I had no issues or nothing to worry about, lo and behold, behold when the government uh, got a hold of General Motors, I was one of the dealers that they decided they were going to remove. And, uh, you know, I thought that was really, I put that in my book. It was a, a turning moment for me because it was like being kicked in the stomach. Government being able to take over something or take something away from you. And uh, it was one of the things that made me start thinking about the federal government and how they had uh, have too much power. 
I contacted my congressman at that time, <clears throat> asked him to come to the dealership, which he did, showed him around. Uh, I figured maybe he could help me. My goal at that point in time was just to keep the dealership. Just to save it, yeah. And uh, and keep the employees in, intact. Um, he told me he would help, and then he went back to Washington, and lo and behold, one of his votes was to reinstate my dealership and a whole bunch of other dealerships, and he voted against it. And, uh, you know, that was my second kick in the stomach where I realized that uh, these politicians can't be trusted. Um, and ultimately, he was taking a, a leadership vote. I talk about that in a book. He was more concerned about leadership supporting him and helping him get reelected than he was about the people who actually vote for him. And uh, was he a, now was he with the Democratic Party? He was or? a Democrat at okay. that time. But uh, again, remember, I, I and I talk about this in the book. I mean, I'm I'm pretty bipartisan, and he was somebody who I got along with and thought would be helpful. And then I realized he was just one of them, one of the people who really didn't care about those that voted for him, only cared about leadership. In fact, he told somebody at one point in time, you know, Jim doesn't really understand. I've got to support leadership because they they'll support me on re-election. Well. Um, Jim did understand, and and as I told you, the principles that I grew up with are, um, you know, loyalty and and values and all those things. And once you tell somebody something, you give them your word, you don't take it back. Well, that's not Washington, and he had really taken back his word and and decided he was going to uh, uh, vote with leadership. Uh, so once I saw that vote, I I called him up and told him, look. Uh, you lied to me. You can't be trusted. I'm going to do whatever I can to remove you from that office, even if I have to run. When I saw that there wasn't wow. really anybody that I believed could beat him, um, I stepped into the game. And uh, lo and behold, 14 months later, I did beat him and became the congressman in the 16th district. Wow. So, and you describe the briefly the uh, primaries because you're you have to go through a whole primary session to you're battling against other Republican candidates. And I thought it was really helpful to point out, as you did in the book, that not everyone that subscribes to a party holds all the same beliefs or values. So you mentioned there is this individual you were running against in the primary that was super far right, claimed like, we're going to repeal the Affordable Care Act and impeach Obama. That's the first thing I'm going to do when I get into office. And that rallies a certain amount of support. And that's kind of like an exciting message to some people. And he, here you are, more middle of the road, like, oh, geez. So how do you how do you fight against the extreme in your own party while at the same time your opponent across the aisle get, is getting the support from Barack Obama and Joe Biden and Bill Clinton endorsed him? And like it became a national spectacle, this little 16th district in Ohio. Can you just describe what that whole 14-month ordeal was sure. like? Did you second-guess it? You're like, what am I doing? Well, first off, remember, I wasn't a politician. I mean, you know, I, I, I consider the mayor's position community service. I mean, you know, you're not in a political game. You're running. You're getting people to know you. You're telling them your vision. People vote for you. In the national level, it is politics. And you have to learn the political game very quickly. You have to realize it's a science, which they, they have educational classes on it. They have degrees on it, political science. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I didn't even know what that was. But now I understand there is a science to it. And you're right. You have, even in your own party, you have factions. And you have to be able to get enough. Um, you know, I used to be able to think, well, somebody looks at Jim Renacci, they're going to see a successful businessman, a successful family man, you know, a church-going, firefighter, baseball coach. I'm going to get 100% of the votes. That's not the way it works. Um, the goal really is to get 51% of the votes. And even mm. in the primary, you got to get 51% of the votes. So you start to look and say, well, I'm never going to be able to get that vote from the guy who stands up and screams that I'm going to impeach Obama. And, and, and by the way, he can't do that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and he can't right. pass legislation to, um, you know, to kill the Affordable Care Act. You just can't do that. Um, I knew that. But you're right. He ginned up the far right and they, they believed he could. And I wasn't going to get that vote. So what I really had to do was just explain to people, this is Jim Renacci. This is who I am. I guarantee you, you can look at my background experience, uh, working class family, you know, working class principles, um, and quit looking at the Republican as just one person. Look at the Republican as somebody who can really get things done and look at my accomplishments. And I, and I use the example. I said, I've signed more of the front of the paychecks and the back of paychecks. And that was a principal line that I used. People hmm. 
really appreciated that. Uh, I understand what it is to create a job. And I had to separate myself from the guy who was saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write up a piece of legislation, I'm going to impeach Obama. And I think in the end, people started to say, hey, wait a minute, he is more reasonable and he is likable. Let's face it, voting is not about your qualifications. Um, that's another thing that people don't understand in politics. It's about, are you likable and can I relate to you? And that's what I was able to do. I mean, people said Jim Renese will never be um, relatable to people because he's a business guy. Well, when, I, when you go around and you shake 50,000 hands, which I did, hmm. um, and you explain who you are, you become likable. And when you talk to people, you become likable. When you listen, you become even more likable. And I think I learned all those principles really just from my family values. I mean, I was always taught you're, better, you're always better a listener than a talker. So one aspect to this, too, um, just another facet of it, is the financial end. It ain't cheap to run for office. And here you are, like a political outsider. I mean, you held, like you said, a community service-oriented position as mayor. Um, did the local Republican Party kind of bristle at you coming in? Like, we already have our guys, and we've already like dumped a ton of money in their direction, kind of a sunk cost fallacy at play. You had to bring your own money into the game. Yeah, so so there were four of us in the primary. That's where it started. Uh, one individual had already run three times, so there was a lot of money sunk into that individual. And in politics, sometimes they say, well, it's your turn. I mean, the best example was uh, our governor, Governor DeWine. Uh, I still remember people asking him, why are you running? And his answer was, because it's my turn. I mean, and that's wow. sometimes what happens in politics. People say it's their turn. Um, and in this case, the individual said it was his turn. He had run two times. And what is this guy coming in um, and now trying to take over this position? And uh, quite frankly, I had to overcome that because he did have some sunk costs in by... There's still people in the Republican Party in the 16th District that don't like me because I beat their candidate who they had spent three cycles with trying to win. But in the end, hmm. um, you know, it's, it's about really... It's, it's about talking about who you are. And it's about explaining your principles and why you're running. And I think the passion was there. People didn't want a, somebody who just wanted the job. I didn't need the job. But they saw somebody who wanted to change things. And I think that was important. So you win. You and all your values fly over to Washington. I think it, you said it's your first week there. And your mentor, Steve LaTourette, uh, says something kind of cryptic to you. Do you want to be happy here? And you're like, uh, yeah, of course. Why not? Well, then you have to get used to disloyalty and dishonesty. And betrayal. And betrayal. Um, boy, when I read that, I'm like, oh, geez. Imagine you're a freshman congressman. You're going to Washington, and you're met with that by someone. You respect someone that maybe has been a little bit jaded by ways that the system is broken. And here you are coming to make change, and those are, those are not your values, right. disloyalty and betrayal. So how'd that make you feel, and what did you do about that? Did you notice that to be the case in your tenure in Washington? Well, first off, I didn't believe him. I thought, you know, but uh, he turned out to be true, and I think I wrote that in a book because my first betrayal was the Speaker of the House. I mean, I was, uh, I was told I was going to be on a certain committee. I just spent my, a lot of money. I knew that I was going to be in another big race two years from now. And committee assignments are important. And the Speaker of the House told me I would have a certain committee assignment. And then I was pawned off to another committee uh, to the benefit of the Speaker, which was the disloyalty and betrayal from that first Speaker that, uh, you know, Steve LaTourette called me and said, okay. And this was only a couple of weeks after he had me in his office. Hmm. He said, here's your first betrayal. And I told the Speaker that. And I talk about that in the book as well, that it was a shock. But then I started to realize that people are only worried about themselves and their next election. And, and that's what Steve LaTourette said. You're going to be in a system where people are more concerned about their next step. And even if they're friends with you, if they have to step on you to get to their next step, they'll step on you. And you just got to be prepared for it. So first lesson was a good lesson. Um, I've told that to many people now that go to Washington. But I also believe that uh, those values and principles just aren't there. It was one of the reasons why I also put in my book that if you're there longer than eight years, you're part of the problem because nobody would want to live in that type of situation and be employed under those situations. But people do like it. 
And they'll say, well, Renee, so you don't understand. Here's here's the response as well. I want to make a change. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't make a change there. I mean, look, and, and I talk about that in a book. You know, we took over this, the House of Representatives and we couldn't make a change. Uh, so, so no, that's not true. Um, there's usually an under another reason why people stay. It could be money, um, which in many cases it is. You know, making 174000 a year is more than many people make. Uh, now, it, does, it comes with the idea that you're away from your family. You have to own two households. Um, so it's not 174000 free and clear, and a lot of people don't realize that. I mean, I once calculated it cost me about $70,000 a year to live in Washington, D.C. So mm. um, that takes away from that 174000 And then the cost of being away from your family and friends, especially if you have little children, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a price that you'll never get back. So, um, you know, why would you stay there? Well, in many cases, some people could never make more than 100000 a year, even if you discount the cost of Washington. So they're going to stay there for that. Other people like the idea of being a congressperson and, sure. and having the ability to walk into a room and people say, oh, there's the congressman. Um, you know, those are all the reasons. But if you're there, um, it's usually not for the right reason because you can't stay there for that long. And I say, if you're there for more than eight years, you're part of the problem. Now, we can question like how the system is set up, but I can see someone coming back and saying, well, Jim, here's how it works. Of course, you know this, but like, here's the, you have these committees and they're drafting legislation. And to get that sweet position of committee chair, I got to put in my time. The House leadership will respect my longevity, how long I've been here. And eventually I'll work my way up to the chair and then change will happen. I'll put in my decade or 15, 16 years doing grunt work on the uh, you know, not being the chair and just being part of the hearings and subcommittees. But one day I'll, I'll be the committee chair and then I'll make change. What do you say to that, Congressman? Uh, it doesn't happen. I mean, the committee <laughs> chairs, again, uh, you get committee chairs by how much money you raise. Uh, you don't get it by, um, you know, putting in your time. Some people become committee chairs in two years because they raise a tremendous amount of money. Some people never become committee chairs. Um and again, what is your purpose? It's supposed to be uh, doing the work of the people that have elected you, not doing the work to get to be chairman or chairwoman. So that is a problem that I continue to say. It's, it's just not the answer because even then when you get to be chairman, you still have to listen to the speaker and the speaker of the house. So I, I saw chairmen and chairwomen who couldn't do what they wanted to do because it was different than what the speaker of the house wanted to do. So again, you work your, your way up to, to chairman or chairwoman, um, and then you still can't get anything accomplished because the Speaker of the House will say, no, you can't do that, mm. or that's not the direction we're going to take. So again, if you want to stick around that long just to say I was a chairman and have your picture on the wall, which they do, you get a portrait if you're the chairman, well, that's a reason to be there, but it's not a reason to get things done. Mm. Yeah, so one uh, key thing in your book was your effort to be pi- bipartisan. And what I take that to mean is working together with someone from the opposing political party to get legislation through. And there's a whole process. I really recommend people buy the book and read about just how committees work. That's really helpful. Um, But going through hearings and then the committee chairs and eventually get it to the floor of the House to be voted on. So can you talk about some of your efforts to pursue bipartisanship and what does that practically look like in Washington? So that really started with my first hearing. You know, I was finally named to the House uh, Financial Services Committee. My first hearing, uh, the chairman was Spencer Bacchus. He was a really good chairman because he actually allowed the committees to work, which was the only committee that I was on where the committee actually worked. And when I say worked, you could bring a bill in. um, You could uh, what we call drop it on the committee. Uh, You could drop amendments on the committee. You could debate them back and forth. And he allowed it to happen. That sounds like... What I think most of us would think actually should happen all the time. Right. And that's and <laughs> that's what I thought was Washington was about. But that was my first committee assignment, and he was very good at that. And I was also on a couple other committees where that didn't happen. So I saw that he was just a different type of chairman. And he mm. used to say that when I become chairman, I'm going to make this system work. Now, he only was chairman for a few years, and then he left because I think the frustration was still there because you could actually – move something out of committee and it never get to the House floor because leadership and the speaker 
controls what goes to the House floor. So even though you vote it out of committee and you approve it out of committee, leadership and the, and the speaker never has to put it on the House floor for debate. So it's another obstacle that you have. If the system was working, once it came out of committee, it should go to the House floor, but that's not the way it works. But uh, bipartisanship, look, in my first committee, I still remember, you know, uh, we all had five minutes of opening statements, and the first five minutes was a back and forth, you know, Republicans are bad people, Democrats are bad people. It finally came to me. I'm, I'm a, uh, a novice, a, a freshman. I'm down on the front of the row, senior members on the back, hmm. comes to me, and I said, you know what, I didn't come here for this. I mean, I really came here to try and get things done and work with the other side. I don't believe in calling people names. Um, I want to work with people to get things done. And Is that I'm a, happening in a hearing, calling names? Well, it's interesting. It's not, you know, like Republicans are bad people and Republicans want to destroy America or Democrats want to do this. That's the kind of okay. things. Um, so I just said, I'm not here for this. I'm not going to waste my five minutes on this. I just really want to work together and get things done. Well, after that hearing... A Democrat from the other side walked over to me, John Carney, um, who's now governor of Delaware, and he said to me, um, I really appreciate what you said. I want to do the same thing. He said, let's have breakfast. And we did. It was just he and I. And uh, he's, and, and we, we hit it off. We became friends. And I said, why don't you invite some more Democrats? I'll invite some more Republicans. And that was my start of bipartisanship. Um, we actually called it the Bipartisan Breakfast Group. Uh, we only allowed... A certain amount of people in because the too big of a group becomes um, you know unmanageable. So we tried to keep it about eighteen or twenty people. We had good debate and good discussion. We were able to learn from each other. Hmm. Um, but even in there, one thing I learned is we would come up with a bill and we'd say, "I still remember John Delaney, who ran for president. He was in the on the Democrat side this this cycle. Um, he came in one time and said the only way this is going to work is if eighty percent of us agree to something." We all have to go down on the floor and agree to it. Well, I was okay with that, but there were a lot of members who said, I can't do that, I can't do that. And if you don't stick together, then the bipartisanship is worthless. So, Well, why would people say, I'm, I'm not going to do it? Well, because of leadership. I, I don't want to take the heat from leadership. I don't want to step up and have leadership. Because remember, to get reelected, you have to have leadership on your side. If you need funding, if you're in a tough race... You need leadership to say we're going to support you, and uh, and you and you need to be able to stay on the committee. Remember the the things that leadership can do to you if you don't go along with them is they can remove you from a committee, they can not help you get reelected, um, and they can never put one of your bills on the floor. But isn't it worth so just to push back slightly? Isn't it if you're the party leader? Isn't it worth having a guy in your party? Yeah, he votes against us sometimes, but it's better than having someone from the opposing party. Like they don't want to lose seats. No, they don't want to lose seats, but they also don't want somebody who's a- an agitator to the system. Remember, yeah. <laughs> if you are, if you're an agitator, you're a problem. What's kind of interesting if you go back to those days when John Boehner was speaker, Jim Jordan was the agitator, and uh, uh, and and John Boehner said that many times. Hmm. You know, now Jim Jordan is moving up in leadership because he's supporting the president President Trump's agenda. But for him to support President Trump's agenda, if you look at some of the things Jim Jordan's doing, he's he's walking away from some of his values and principles, too. Uh, you know, the principle, I mean, one thing about Jim Jordan, he would never vote. He still doesn't in many cases. Uh, he would never vote for a spending bill because we're, we're broke. He would never vote for a CR because, you know, that's not the way business should be done. He would never do some of those things. And, uh, and, and so he's got – the one thing about Jim is he is – he does maintain many of his principles, um, but at the same time, you got to give up some of those if you're going to move up on the leadership. And I think he has done some of that, not as much as others. I mean, some people go fully in, and uh, you know, you'll hear you'll hear uh, chairman say, "It doesn't matter what the vote is. I'm going to always vote with the leadership. I'm one of the, I'm one of the team players." So, did the bipartisan Breakfast Club make it all the way through to? Your whole tenure? All, or did all, all eight years. Oh, cool. And, okay. and we stuck together, and we did some good things. Uh, we didn't do anything big, because big is a problem if you try and do something big. I wrote about that in my book. There was a there was a bill that uh, on the FEC commission. I mean, we have four Republicans and four Democrats, so nothing gets done. And it doesn't matter what goes through the FEC. And FEC is the f- uh, funding of candidates. 
So every time there's an issue, we'll say, you know, John Doe or Jane Doe candidate has a problem. Well, the four Republicans are going to defend the Republican. If it's a Republican, the four Democrats are going to defend the Democrat. And it's always a four to four vote. Nothing gets done. So one of the things we said is we need to fix that. And we need to put a fifth, a, a ninth person in. And, hmm. and that person has to chair. And, and I mean, I got a call from the Speaker of the House, and I never forget that. He said to me, uh, Renacy, that bill's going nowhere. He said, um, it's actually a good bill, and I understand why you're doing it, but uh, back off and, you know, and quit pushing it. And, uh, of course, we filed the bill knowing that it was going to go nowhere, but uh, it was one of those things. And then if the Speaker says, lay off of it, you can't get co-sponsors. Because then co-sponsors, many co-sponsors say, so what's the speaker say? What's leadership say? And at that point in time, if you say, well, leadership doesn't want you to do it, they're not going to put their name on it, hmm. even if it's a good bill. What are some other efforts of bipartisanship during your time? Just the breakfast thing, or what, what else did that look like? Well, I think, by, look, bipartisanship has been able to work with, with the other side. So I was always willing to, um, I put this in my book. I, I remember being at a bipartisan dinner and and many of my Democrat friends were inviting me back to the Democrat club. And that that was news to me that there was a Democrat club and there was Republican a Democrat club, club and a Republican club. Yeah. And, and I still remember, you know, uh, one of the Republicans, uh, Pat Tiber, saying to me, "Nobody goes to the Democrat club." I go, "Well, I'm going." And of course, I thought. Then I'm thinking, "Well, maybe I shouldn't go." <laughs> uh, but what was interesting, I ended up getting a ride back with four Democrats squeezed in the car, and they go, "Renee, you're coming with us." And I went in the Democrat club, and then I ended up going there multiple times. I watched sporting events with them. Uh, now, you know, we could disagree on the floor, but at the same time... The whole room go, goes quiet when you came in or something? Well, it's funny. No, actually, uh, many of them came up to me and said, hey, what are you doing here? Hey, thank, glad you're here. No, it was... Hmm. I mean, there were some people that looked at me like, what's he doing here? Uh, but in the end, when I came back the next time, I was invited in. I mean, and then I took Republicans, I took Democrats to the Republican club. And we invited them in, too. So I think those are the kind of things we have to do. If, if, you, if you looked on some of the hearings, you would see myself and Bill Pascrell going at it like we were not friends. But he and I were probably the cl two of the closest friends when it came to bipartisanship. He was a Democrat from uh, New Jersey, and I got along with him very well. Now, people used to say, you know, he's, he's anti-Trump, he's anti-this. You know, he's just, look— He's got his principles and positions. I disagree with him, but we're friends. And to this day, when I go back to the house, uh, he called me like a couple months ago and said, I really miss you. I mean, that's when I felt good, like I made a difference. Hmm. When the Democrats call me and say, we really miss you here. Hmm. Now, you touch on this briefly in the book, but I'd like to just get a little more into it. The whole topic of earmarks. And initially, just that idea that you could tack on something to the end of a bill that supports your local district in some way. Maybe it doesn't totally help for big federal bills and projects, but it seems at least on the face of it that that could be a good way to build bipartisan relationship. Like, hey, Renacy, thanks for voting on this bill that had my little bridge for my district earmarked onto it. But I feel like in the book you were suggesting earmarks are no good. Why is that? If it is a if a way to build bipartisanship. Well, what I said what I said was earmarks are bad if they're not done right. Okay. All right. So if you think about it, uh, the government spends about four trillion dollars a year. Unbelievable that we're talking trillions and nobody thinks about it. Mm. But they spend four trillion. If the if the House and Senate do not earmark that money for certain things, then the administration spends it anyway. So it's going to be spent. So wouldn't it be better? for Republicans and Democrats to work together for projects. And what I said, earmarks is just a bad word. Mm. What they should be is spending priorities. So that if we have a spending priority for a federal bridge in Medina County, well, I should be able to go convince, I should be able to bring the county commissioners to Washington, the mayor or whoever is over that bridge, and I should get them to convince that this is a federally funded bridge that needs to be fixed and get that put into the spending bill. Mm -hmm. That's what I call a priority spending. Now, why doesn't that happen? That sounds great. Well, because what happens is people want to call them earmarks, and they're not earmarks, although it's funds that are earmarked for a certain bridge. Mm. In the past, what would happen, 
in, in the early, early days, uh, which is one of the reasons we have the debts and deficits we do, is if you're a Democrat, I'm a Republican, or I'm a Democrat, and you're a Republican, you would come to me and say, hey, Jim, um, I need $2 million in my district to build a library, yeah. and uh, I could really use your vote. And if you vote for my $2 million library, I'll vote for your $2 million bridge. Right. And, and nobody was evaluating whether that library or bridge was needed. And that's what that's the bad earmark. Or if it should even be federally funded. Or if it should be federally funded, funded, right. So if you go back, you'll see a lot of things that were spent that should have never been spent. But Republicans and Democrats got together and said, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And those were the earmarks that ended up being the bad ones that people said we want to get rid of. And, and should have been. Now, one, what I found really frustrating, not the writing, but the concept of campaigns that take your voting record and misinterpret it for their own purposes so if you if you voted against a bill um even if there's this other little part to it and it just goes against your values you voted no on the whole bill but then they'll come out and say something like well race is against the military or growing the economy or whatever it happens to be and it's hard to rein back in the false information that can go out through campaigning and i was just kind of curious do you have a proposed solution to fight that because no i think i think you just got to ask the question like people would say to me why did you vote against a budget bill that spent you know a trillion dollars of which some of it went to raising the salaries of our military and i say well i support our military the problem is the trillion dollars was never budgeted. It was never put through the appropriation process. It never went through committee, and I'm not going to vote for it. And they didn't understand that, because Mm. you're right. The other side or your opponent would pick that little thing out. Well, he voted against this, which meant he voted against the military. Well, that's not true, because if you look at my background, you say I always supported the military. But I did vote against. I voted every time there was a CR, which is a continuing resolution, Mm -hmm. because a continuing resolution meant we didn't budget and we didn't do our appropriations bills. And we got down to the wire, and we couldn't shut the government down, so we would just vote for a CR. I didn't vote for those. And, and some of those CRs, I could, I could be criticized for not spent, wanting to spend money on the post office or on the military or right. all these things. But the truth of it was, I just wasn't going to vote for a I CR. I mean, anything, anything that's federally funded, yeah. you could be accused of right. denying support for voting down a CR, which for our listeners is just uh, – like re-upping the budget from the previous year, kind it's of a, it's, bypassing it, the whole process right. of budgeting. It's handing a checkbook over to the administration and saying, just spend it as long as you don't spend any more that's in there already. Yeah. So they can spend it on anything they want to spend it on. But if you notice, and I wrote this in a book, I, I never forget there was a bill, my bill, um, that actually saved government money. Uh, that was a, a partnership audit bill that I worked very hard on. I got it, and that's the other problem with bills. And I talk about this in a book. I could work very hard on a on a budget on a on a a bill, and I could get co-sponsors and everything else. And then leadership would take that bill and merge it into a big bill. So I never forget the day that I had worked probably six months on a partnership audit bill, which was going to save the federal government a lot of money, maybe eleven or twelve billion dollars. And uh, they took that bill, hmm. merged it into a another bill which was a, a phony spending bill on roads and bridges that had, uh, had no pay-fors in it uh, except phony pay-fors. And, uh, and I, I never forget the Speaker of the House saying, okay, because I said I wasn't going to vote for that uh, spending bill that didn't have the pay-fors in it. And, and the Speaker of the House said, okay, Renacci, um, let's see what you do because I just took your bill and put it in there. I voted against it. Mm-hmm. And I never forget, he walked up to me and said, you voted against your own bill. I go, no, I voted against a bill that you took my bill and put it in It's inside. a different bill now. Yeah. This isn't. That doesn't sound like Schoolhouse Rock, like I learned about I'm Just a Bill. I don't remember her, him being merged into, grafted onto another bill. It's not Schoolhouse Rock, which <laughs> is part of the problem. Darn. Uh, okay, so the climactic topic, I think, and I think you've run a lot of campaigns, and this is your big message, is budgeting. Look, country, we have to budget and... We're overspending. Look at the national debt. This is outrageous. And I think it can be easy for the average American citizen to not really grasp 
why that's a problem. So let me just give you an example. I would say most homeowners take out a pretty significant mortgage when they first get started and they have a negative net worth, like maybe that first day after they get that mortgage. And it was worth it for me to do that. I'll pay it off over the 15 or 30 year stint, but it was worth leveraging having that debt on the books to get this great good, namely raising my family in a nice home. Why, why is that not the case at the national level? Like, aren't there some goods that it's worth going into debt for in order to enjoy, like, we still have to live our lives right now and we need these goods. Let's get them even if it costs us some debt. Now the comeback is, um, you know, I guess the question is how much is too much debt? Are we at that breaking point? Where's that threshold where you're now unequivocally, you're over leveraged and there's no chance to pay it back. Are we close to that? Are we tiptoeing? Can you just kind of sort through this morass of topics? Well, think about it. In 2010, the country said that $10 trillion of debt was too much. That was 2010. And we ran, and I ran, on a platform. 94 Republicans were elected. I think it was 94, because we said we were not going to let the national debt get out of hand. Today, the national debt is at $30 trillion, 10 years later. That's why I call it the lost decade, because Republicans lost the opportunity to fix things when it was $10 trillion. Now, nobody wants to talk about it today. In fact, yesterday, it just came out that we have a record deficit in the history of the United States, $3.1 trillion this year, higher than any other year in history. The highest before that was $1.4 or $1.6 trillion under Barack Obama, and we crucified President Obama for having a deficit of 1.4, 1.6. Now, we COVID. Really, what's that? COVID led to a lot of that, right? The the well, stimulus we, package. We were already we were already on track for 1.5 to 1.6 trillion. All we did was 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 add even more. So we were already going to have record deficits this year because nobody's paying attention and nobody cares. And like I heard this morning, which was interesting from a congressman I was talking to, Mitch McConnell has said you'll never lose an election by spending money. So you can spend and spend and spend, and the American people don't, aren't paying attention to it. But let's take your example of the house. You buy a $200,000 house and you put a $180,000 mortgage on it. Well, you haven't leveraged the family because you still have a $200,000 home. As long as that home doesn't collapse in value and go down to $150,000, you could sell it mm-hmm. and get your money back and pay that debt off. But what we're doing in Washington is we're leveraging against no assets, Hmm. So we're leveraging trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars on stimulus, for instance. And you mentioned that's a stimulus package. Great example. We just put out two or three tri- trillion dollars worth of stimulus money. Well, here's the problem. Once that's burned up, you What's don't have an asset. Yeah. And they'll say, well, you have the economy. Well, it didn't work because the economy is still struggling. So these are the kind of assets in business. Which, you know, If you're a business person, a businessman or woman, um, you might spend some money to help grow things, but you're not going to put out, you know, a third of your spending just to try and grow something. So are we in trouble? Sure, we're in trouble. The Comptroller General, a lot of people don't even know that the United States has a Comptroller General, appointed by Barack Obama in 2008, I believe. He's got a 20-year appointment. Um, sat in my office, said, uh, Congressman Nacy, I'm glad that you're talking about the deficit. We all should be talking about it. We will be in a Greece-like situation within 20 years. That was in 2012 he said that. So Hmm. we're eight years into the 20 years. Um, A Greece-like situation, if anybody uh, that's listening to this understands what a Greece-like situation is, I mean, Greece is basically totally in debt, owes money to every country around it, and has a financial um, calamity in its economy. Well, that's exactly where we could be. That's, what the, that's exactly where the Comptroller General is saying. So why shouldn't we be spending this money? Because anytime you spend more money than you're bringing in, you're taxing people in the future. So think about it from that standpoint. Because that money has to be paid back. Some of it's owed to China, which is another problem. And then people say, well, that's a small amount. You know, it's just $2 trillion that's owed to China. Okay, they're right. But guess where the rest of it's owed to? Anytime you buy a Treasury bill um, that you think's uh, you know, solid and backed by the federal government, it's it's backed by a deficit because that's what you're doing. You're buying treasuries. 
you're buying debt. You're buying federal debt. U.S. futures. Right. So in the end, if you spend, if you if you buy a thousand dollar Treasury bill, that Treasury bill, if the federal government can't pay that back sometime, your Treasury bill is worthless. So do you want your family to own Treasury bills that could be worthless in twenty years? No. And that's the problem. So yeah, would you say like just to really crystallize the issue for people, is it the case that there will come a time? maybe it's in 12 years, as the controller predicted, that it would not be a wise investment for anyone to buy another U.S. bond or treasury bill. And then where is the U.S. going to find extra money to pay off or to get these goods if we're still running a deficit? Like the bonds market will collapse eventually. Is that what well, is ultimately so, so wrong? So here's what people would tell you. until and So right now, even the, though the United States is in $28 trillion to $30 trillion worth of debt, we're still better off than most countries in the world. The day that most countries in the world are better than off than us is the day the United States economy will be in deep trouble. Mm. So that day will come at some point in time. Like, here's the best example, Canada. Canada, who was in, in a big deficit and debt situation, paid all off all its debt and, and put an austerity program in 10 or 15 years ago. So today... Canada doesn't have any debt, or the debt they have is manageable. So they're in much better shape than the United States today. And, and that's where we need to be concerned, because as we look around at our allies in other countries, when their debt becomes better than our debt to buy or invest in, and people would rather invest in theirs, and they say, you know what, I, don't want, I want to cash in my treasuries, and I want to buy Canada treasuries, I'll just use that as an example, mm-hmm. the federal government's not going to have the cash to do it. That's when the, the federal government has problems. So, well, I mean, what's the answer? How do you? So, you left Congress eventually. I mean, you could have run for re-election. You bowed out of the race, right? In 2018 was your final year of your. 20, uh, so I was there until January 3rd of 2019. 2019. Um, basically, I mean, felt like the system wasn't working. You couldn't produce the change that you wanted to. I was there eight years. I I made the decision that Washington's broken. It's so broken it can't be fixed, so we better get back to the states and fix the states. So I left Washington and said I'm going to run for governor. Um, And the best example I can give you about the state of Ohio is very similar. Ohio, uh, about 50, well, 52 or 53 percent of what Ohio spends today is Medicaid dollars. Federally, funded Medicaid dollars. Hmm. So think about that. When the federal government doesn't have any more money to pay for their federally funded Medicaid system that they're paying Ohio for now, Ohio, it'll be a domino effect. So what I said is I want to go back to Ohio and fix. I truly believe that we got to get back to the points where the states are strong enough to withstand um, you know, the economy on their own without the federal government, which, by the way, was the way it was several hundred years ago. I mean, states were strong enough to survive, and the federal government was just put together really as, you know, for interstate commerce, uh, you know, for the post office, uh, for transportation. Those were the reasons. Um, Today, the federal government has become the overwhelming necessity for some states to survive, and we got to change that. So I believe that we got to go back, and I say that in my book, states have to become stronger, and I said, I'm going to run for governor. And I'm going to do what I can to get Ohio stronger because the day of reckoning will come for Ohio, too. And, uh, and I said that, and I still think we're the day of reckoning. Look, we're now going through coronavirus. Next year, you watch how hard Ohio struggles because Ohio is dependent on federal dollars. So if you're a state dependent on federal dollars and the federal government at some point in time starts to ratchet it back, Ohio will be in a really bad position. The problem with states and many states like Ohio is the politicians only look to the next election, not 10 and 20 years down the road. Hmm. See, when I ran for mayor, how, why I was successful is I built a 10-year plan. I built a 10, 15-year plan. Ohio today is building plans based on two years and four years. Not, not going to be helpful, and that's why people are leaving. Our taxes are too high. And I talk about that in a book. We have a situation in Ohio that we're so dependent on federal dollars that Ohio will have a collapsing situation at some time, maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now, maybe five years from now. Nobody knows when the day of reckoning is. 
Are there any states in this union that are running a surplus where they wouldn't have to rely on government Donalds? South Dakota, the governor of South Dakota, Christy Nome, was just in Ohio. She's a personal friend of mine. She's running a surplus. I mean, and she's running a surplus in coronavirus time. So how do, how do, how do you do that? What's, what's some of her platforms? She kept, she kept the state open. Uh, she gave the authority to the people. She didn't take it away. You know, she has an interesting story because she said when the coronavirus hit, she brought in the health department and they said, hey, we got a problem here. She brought in our hospital systems and said, hey, we got a problem here. And she brought her attorneys in. And the attorney said, yeah, you may have a problem, but one thing, you can't violate the Constitution. You can't tell a business that it's essential or not essential. You can't tell an individual he or she has to wear a mask. You can't tell an individual that they have to stay home. You can't tell a business that they have to close at 10 o'clock. Those are Hmm. unconstitutional acts of the federal government and the state government. So she evaluated everything and said, I'm going to leave it up to the businesses and the people. And what she will tell you is, yes, she has coronavirus there, but her state has a surplus. Businesses want to come and grow there. Um, she has to build her economic department because people want to ha- want to be able to put a business in a state like that. So there are some of the answers. We got to we got to give the authority back to the people, which is why the United States was formed, you know, 200 plus years ago. It was about you know being tired of the government, England, telling us what to do, and now we have state government telling us to do. I mean, and and that's a problem. So I think. The answer really exists is you've got to have your uh, economics growing. Going back to the city, when people say, how did you balance the budget and make the city of Wadsworth successful? I grew the economy, didn't raise taxes, allowed, I got businesses to want to come there. You know, I went, to, I went to our planning department and they'd say, well, you don't understand. I go, I'm going to tell you, what you don't understand is we need this revenue and we need to be able to get them into the city in a reasonable fashion. Yes, they have to follow some regulations, but we don't need to make it so hard that they don't want to come here. And that's what we did. We opened it up to business, and then the city became stronger. It's the same thing we're going to have to do um, in local government, state government, and we got to get the government off our back. So it gets right back to the question, why did I leave Washington? Because Washington's broken. And until somebody realizes that, I don't think we're going to fix it. Now, if you know in my book, I spent one whole chapter on how to fix it. Yeah, lay, lay down some laws for us. What would you do? Well, term limits. If you could snap your fingers. Term limits. you got to put term limits in. People cannot have that much power. Um, and it's interesting because people say, well, we have, vote, we, we have term limits called voting. You can vote somebody out every time. It doesn't happen because if you're there long enough, you have the name ID and you have the money to basically squash anybody who tries to. The war chest. Right. Yeah. So, so you can't do it that way. The other thing is just get back to regular order. If you're at regular order, and I talk about this in a book, regular order is Jim Renacci is a legislator on the, on the Ways and Means Committee. I come up with a bill. I go get, you know, the Ways and Means Committee had 34 people. I get 19 people to support it. It passes. And then I get 100 and, well, you need 218 on the, on the House side. I get 200. And I move it through. It's the, it's the, uh, the way that you hear in, in, the, in the books, you know. Right. This is, the, this is the way legislation works. So let's give that back. When it comes to finances, we've got to break the, the, the money in politics. Now, you can't take money away from politics. Because it's a free speech thing. Right. In a way. Like when I give my money to a campaign, that's one way of me expressing my... Right. But here's the problem. It's, it's not just you giving money. That's right. it. it's, it's now bundled and, and you've got to have more transparency. But here's the other problem. If you... Without the money, you can't beat the incumbent. So if you take the incumbent away by having term limits and you scale the money back, now you can have a, a, a system that works. And I think those are some of the things we need to do. And, and you know, just regular order, I mean, term limits will, will help dramatically because it, it'll, you know, and people say, well, if you have term limits, the problem is there's this you know, um, intrinsic value you have by being there for 10 years. No, there's not. Yeah. <laughs> because I was there for 10 years and it didn't matter. It didn't matter because who really writes the bills? I mean, bills today are written by staffers mm. in some dark room that come up with all this stuff and listen to all the lobbyists and, th- and then they put a bill together. And then they, they roll a 2,000-page bill out and say, hey, you got to vote for it. 
So I don't care whether you got 15 years or 20 years, you're still going to get that bill. So the truth of it is regular order will fix that. Um, term limits will fix the problem with having the same old people there. Money and politics will change it. Um, there are a number of ways we can do it. Now, the, the tricky part is how do you instantiate term limits without – doesn't the House – have to like shoot itself in the foot and pass that bill to lower to reduce their own limits. Well, the, the actually the the states could do it. Um, oh, okay. You know, you could change constitutions. You got to get the states to step up, which is another way. Uh, yes, the House could do it and the Senate could do it, but they're not. That right? They're not going to shoot themselves in the yeah. foot. But um, you could get the you could put the power back. You don't want to have a constitutional convention. That's you hear people say we should have a constitutional convention where every state gets together. Now. What you should do is constitutional amendments and get the state to ratify constitutional amendments. Then, then it's not a haphazard, because guess what happens in constitution convention? That means you bring all the states together. What do you think will follow? All the money will follow, and then all the special interests will follow, and they'll go in that room, and it'll all be decided by you know, money instead of true values and principles. That's why I do believe constitutional amendments, I talk about that, is a better way of doing it. So what's next for Jim Renacci? He's he's left Washington. Anything on the horizon? You're you're writing. You're serving locally with the Medina County uh, Republican Party. Any plans to influence the state in the future? Well, look, I, I formed something called Ohio's Future Foundation, which has really looked at the policies that are hurting Ohio, and there are a tremendous amount of policies that have just been continued and continued and continued because to change them, you're risking an election. And I think what we need to do is we need to put people in power who are willing to lose uh, to hmm. get things done. And I think that's that's one issue. So I'm going to continue to talk about those things. I'm doing an economic study with a couple of universities on why Ohio has failed. It's pretty interesting. Ohio was, when I came here 37 years ago, Ohio was one of the most booming states in the country. And 37 years later, it's the sixth most left state in the country, not politically, sixth most left. People are leaving. Um, it's ranked, you know, the 39th state when it comes to hmm. a whole bunch of categories. It's got one of the top, it's top five for regulations. It's like the 46th when it comes to, you know, tax, favorable tax uh, uh, situation. All these are bad numbers. you got to fix it. Just like I did for the city of Wadsworth. You got to look at what's not working or what is working for other cities, and you got to change it. But to do that, you have to put people in power who are willing to make a difference and make a change. And uh, so, what I'm doing is I'm talking about those policies, not about the people, about the policies. And before coronavirus, I was traveling the state. I was doing, um, talking about my book on why Washington's broken. But I was also talking to chambers and and lots of groups throughout the state. Now, with coronavirus, that's somewhat come to a halt. Um, but, you know, I'm still continuing to do that. I'm sitting on a number of boards, uh, business boards, so I'm still engaged in the business world. Uh, but I'm, I'm not going to give up. Uh, I'm going to keep talking about our debts and deficits. I still do podcasts and Comcast, and uh, I was just on a, a, a network this morning. Uh, I'm on radio stations, and I'm continuing to talk nationally about the problems, uh, but also statewide I talk about the issues. And um, am I an outsider when it comes to this? Sure, I'm an outsider, because if you're going to talk about the problems and you're a Republican and Republicans are in power and control for the last 10 years, then you're probably talking about Republican policies that aren't working. Right. And, uh, and quite <laughs> frankly, there are a lot of policies that aren't working, uh, and that's what we need to change. So I'm going to continue to do that, and I'm going to try to find a way to influence it so that we can change Ohio Instead of being the sixth most left state in the country, I like it to be the, and we should be. We got so many great assets here, from the lake to the river down south, uh, to the you know to the national park, to the uh, rock and roll hall of fame, to the football hall of fame, you know to Sandusky, to the uh, these are things that we should be, you know, talking about and selling, and we should have a state that people want to come to, and don't let anybody kid you because the first thing people say is what's well, the weather. People are leaving a higher because of weather. No, because you know where they're going? Washington State. Do you think Washington State has better weather than us? You know, they're going to Vermont. Vermont's one of the number one states people are going to. Why? Hmm. 
Well, it's not the weather. So if you start now, I will say some people do leave because of the weather. I mean, people go to South Carolina sure. and other places, but you know, people it's not want a to deal go. breaker. Yeah. yeah, people. Wisconsin's a great state. You know why? Because they've taken advantage of their wintertime activities and they promote those. So if you think of Wisconsin, you think of you know skiing and snowboarding and and uh, all those things. Well, they've used that to their advantage. But Ohio is is becoming a state where people are just leaving. And we've got to figure out a way to change that. And, and I'm going to continue to, to try and influence that and make people aware that we can make Ohio great again, as President Trump would say. So where can our audience find you online? Is there a specific place you'd like to point them to? Sure. Uh, you can go to jimbernacy.com, which, uh, which will keep people on, on, up to date on what I'm doing personally. You can go to ohiofuturefoundation.org, which will tell a lot about ohiofuturefoundation.org. Uh, but really, jimmernacy.com, I'm trying to keep track of everything we're doing. I'm trying to use that as the central place. And uh, and then, look, uh, Facebook, social media. I run my own uh, Facebook, my own personal Facebook account. I do have people running some of the other Facebook accounts. But we're continuing to stay active and talk about the issues. Uh, we're going to be much more open. I mean, this is a, a, a presidential election year. So, you know, it's hard to influence because the presidential election takes so much time of people's bandwidth. But after yeah. November 3rd, the bandwidth kind of opens up and that's where we're going to really try and push a lot of things we need to do to fix Ohio. Yeah. And, and buy the book. It's only three or $4 on Amazon. You're not trying to make a buck off it. No, um, in fact, all profits, uh, uh, they, they, they go to the USO. So they're actually donated to the veterans group. So um, no, I, I really, that book was really so people, I was hoping that it would take off and people would say, I want to figure out why Washington isn't working. And when you read it, you do realize that. And I, get, and I talk to people all over the country. I'm on radio stations all around the country, and they go, wow, I mm. didn't realize that people need to buy the book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, Jim, for your time and your wisdom. Wish you all the best in what's coming next. And thanks for watching another episode of Open to Truth. We'll see you next time.